Hypostasis, Scripture versus Theology, written by Blaise Webster for the OCAB Symposium 2023, August 25th, 2023. Part 1, Hypostasis and Usia as Particular and General Essence. The saga of the Christological controversies in late antiquity and the Middle Ages can be summed up by an incessant obsession with the precise definition of certain words in order to concoct a robust definition of God. With that precision, however, comes confusion, which is demonstrated by the various councils after Nicaea which were largely held in order to solve disputes as to the precise value of theological lingo. One of the main culprits for this confusion was the word hypostasis, which was the source of not only the conflict of the Nicene Council, but also, and more infamously so, in the councils of Ephesus and Chalcedon, which forever divided the Eastern churches over different interpretations and applications of this particular word. The problem with hypostasis wasn't so much its precise meaning, but rather its precise boundary when describing the nature and function of an individual. The word itself at its most basic breakdown means to stand underneath. It refers to the concrete reality of a thing, whether it be a person or not. The confusion was exacerbated by the use of the Greek word usia in theological circles, and how Jesus Christ could be both distinct from God the Father while also being divine himself. It was decided at the Council of Nicaea that usia refers to the general godness that the Father and the Son share, and that hypostasis refers to the individual identities and functions of the Father and the Son. In other words, usia referred to the general essence, and hypostasis referred to particular identity. This was only the start of the issue, however, as the word hypostasis Hypostasis became the new focal point for debate, along with many other words like feces or nature. The question of whether two natures, divine and human, could share one hypostasis decimated Christian unity in the East. Some historians have blamed this on cultural differences, where hypostasis may have had different meanings to those who were not natively Greek speakers. While this might be partly true, the problem seems to run deeper with a word that can be used several different ways. In other words, there isn't a one-use-fits-all approach that is precise enough for these admittedly increasingly abstract debates. The early church historian Socrates Scholasticus makes some astonishing observations in his ecclesiastical history, where in Book 3, he describes a synod in Alexandria where the efficacy of the terms usia and hypostasis were being debated. For reference, this was shortly prior to the Council of Nicaea. Of this, he wrote, It was there determined that such expressions as usia and hypostasis ought not to be used in reference to God, for they argued that the word usia is nowhere employed in the sacred scriptures, and that the apostle had misapplied, katakrisaste, the term hypostasis, Hebrews 1.3, owing to an inevitable necessity arising from the nature of the doctrine. In that last sentence, it is striking that the members of the synod considered the use of hypostasis in Hebrews 1.3 a misapplied term. The English translation doesn't really do it justice, because the original Greek has the aorist middle infinitive verb katakrisaste, which means to make full use of in the sense of overusing or stretching. In other words, they were saying that the word hypostasis is way too broad to be used for a any sort of theological specification. In relation to this very problem, Socrates supplies his own thoughts on the controversy, writing, If we may express our own judgment concerning substance and personality, it appears to us that the Greek philosophers have given us various definitions of usia, but have not taken the slightest notice of hypostasis. Irenaeus the grammarian, indeed, in his lexicon Atticistes, even declares it to be a barbarous term, for it is not to be found in any of the ancients, except occasionally in a sense quite different from that which is attached to it in the present day. 
end quote. With the swift stroke of dark propheticism, Socrates explicated the problem that the word hypostasis would cause for the church throughout history, as it was precisely the disagreements over hypostasis and other similar theological lingo which shattered Christian unity in the East. It is striking that the Synod also identified the problem specifically with the word usia. The inference to Hebrews 1.3 is also interesting because in direct contravention to the theologians of that Alexandrian synod, this verse has been used in light of its theological development, and not necessarily on its context within that particular text, nor its usage in other parts of scripture, let alone contemporaneous and historical, extra-biblical usage of the term. So what does the apostle mean by hypostasis? In order to answer this question, we need to not only look at its occurrences in the epistle to the Hebrews, but also in the totality of Scripture. Part 2, Hypostasis in the Old and New Testaments. Without context, it is tempting to read our theology into the text of Hebrews 1-3. This is reflected in most translations, at least in English. The English Standard Version of Hebrews 1-1-3 reads, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, hypostasios, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Many other translations follow a similar paradigm, sometimes using words such as substance, essence, and person. While this may seem clear-cut enough, what is striking is that out of the five occurrences of hypostasis in the New Testament, this is the only place where it could possibly be referring to a person. In the other occurrences, it carries the connotation of assurance or confidence. In 2 Corinthians 9.4, we have, Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. Ipostasi. 2 Corinthians 11.17 what I am saying with this boastful confidence, hypostasi, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Hebrews 3.14, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, hypostasios, firm to the end. And Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance, hypostasis, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In this context, the common translation of hypostasis as something akin to nature is the outlier among the New Testament occurrences. With respect to the Septuagint, though, the pool is even larger, and there is a chance to compare the Greek with the original Hebrew text to get an even more clear view on how this word functions in Scripture. There are 19 occurrences of this word in the Septuagint, so for the sake of brevity, not every occurrence will be chosen, but the full range of these occurrences will be represented. The word hypostasis in the Septuagint often translates multiple different Hebrew words of varying connotations. One interesting example is the translation of the Hebrew kum into hypostasis. Here is an example from Deuteronomy 11.6. And what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing, Hekum, Ipostasin, that followed them in the midst of all Israel. While the English translation in the ESV renders Hekum to living things, the literal rendering would be of those who are standing out, this can be seen in another instance, where hekum is rendered as exanastasin in Greek. For in seven days I will send rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing, yakum, 
Exanastasin that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. That's from Genesis 7.4. Here, both of these roots are employed as equivalents as they are in the biblical text, and they will reinforce the basic etymological rendering of hypostasis as having to do with standing. Another example can be seen in Job 22.20, where the word gimanu from the root kum is describing an adversary. Quite literally, it has the connotation of one standing against something or someone. Saying, surely our adversaries, kimanu, hypostasis, are cut off, and what they have left, the fire has consumed. Another such example is from the verb amad, which usually has the connotation of taking one stand. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold, ma'amad, hypostasis. I have come into deep waters. Here the connotation is that of a lower support, something to rest one's feet on. This connotation of hypostasis as being both a support literally and figuratively is quite common throughout the scriptures. Hypostasis is also used to describe support columns or some physical support structure. Firstly, the connotation of weightiness can be readily seen by the very first instance of hypostasis in the Septuagint. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden, what must him, hypostasin, of you and your strife? And then in Ezekiel 26, 11, we can see the connotation with the support columns. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets, he will kill your people with the sword and your mighty pillars. Wamatzabot, hypostasin, will fall to the ground. Here the Septuagint translates the Hebrew Matzeba, which is often used for physical structures. The context in that verse is an admonition against the king of Tyre and the prophetic warning of God sending Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, to destroy the city of Tyre, including, and most especially, their palaces and temples. Even more striking than this is the occurrence of hypostasis in the Greek translation of Ezekiel 43.11. Here the context is surrounding the completion of God's eschatological temple. And if they are ashamed of all that they have done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, that is, its whole design. Tsurato hypostasin. Here, the word hypostasis is referring to the totality of God's temple. It's not merely the support beam, as in Matzeba, but the whole design. It is from this vantage point where we can see where the common gloss of hypostasis is referring to essence can be seen. But what is meant by essence here does not have to do with metaphysics. It is merely the totality of the thing in question. For example, the Septuagint often uses hypostasis as a gloss to describe a group of people or as a means of describing a person's totality. In the former case, we have the occurrences in 1 Samuel where the word hypostasis is used to describe the garrison of the Philistines. 1 Samuel 13.23 and the garrison, Matzab, Ipostasios, of the Philistines, went out to the pass of Michmash. 1 Samuel 14.4, within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, Matzab, Ipostasin, there was a rocky crag on the one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other, Sene. There is another example in Judges 6.4 where the entirety of the living creatures are glossed by the word hypostasis. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance, mechaya, hypostasin, in Israel, and no sheep, ox, or donkey. 
In the latter case of a hypostasis referring to a person's totality, there are a few examples from the Psalms. Psalm 39.5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime, wacheldi, hypostasis, is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Psalm 89.47, Let my cheled, hypostasis, be remembered as to what sort it is. For did you create the sons of men in vain? Psalm 139.15, My bones were not hidden from you, which you made in secret, and my hypostasis from the depths of the earth. There is another example of this usage from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10.17, Gather your wares, kinatek, hypostasin, dwelling among the elect. But if they stood in my counsel, besaudi, hypostasi, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. Finally, the Septuagint also uses hypostasis figuratively in accordance with the majority of the occurrences in the New Testament. In the following examples, we see a few instances where hypostasis is rendered as hope. In Ruth 1.12, Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, tiqua, hypostasis, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. And then from Psalm 39.7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope, tochauti, hypostasis, is in you. As can be seen from these examples, hypostasis can be used in a myriad of ways, and it is extremely difficult to gloss its entire potentiality of value into one all-encompassing English word. So in order to understand what hypostasis is referring to in a given text, we cannot determine its overall meaning, but its function in the sentence in the broader context. Part 3, Hypostasis in Hebrews 1.3 When dealing with the opening text of Hebrews, it is tempting to just quickly gloss over it because it appears on the surface to validate our theological formulas regarding the relationship between Jesus Christ and his Father. However, if we look deeper, there is a great deal of power with this introduction. The first two verses firmly present Christ as the telos, that is, the end of the scriptural narrative. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. These first verses underscore Paul's teaching in Romans 10.4, which explains Christ's role as being the end of the law and the bringer of rest, the meaning of which will be explicated throughout the remainder of Hebrews. It is from this vantage point, establishing Christ as the end of the scriptural narrative, where we are provided with the next few verses highlighting Christ's unique role. In Hebrews 1, 3, and 4, He is the radiance of the glory, doxis, of God, and the exact imprint, charakter, of his nature, hypostasios. And he upholds, feron, the universe by the word, rimati, of his power, Dinameos. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The introduction to a literary work is often reflective of the main thesis of that said work. That being said, when we are attempting to decode the value of hypostasis in this verse, 
we need to do so within the framework of how it was previously used in Scripture and how it relates to the rest of Hebrews. At first glance, it is fascinating that there are two words connoting weightiness alongside hypostasis. The first is doxa, referring to the glory. The Hebraic concept of glory in the Hebrew word kabod literally refers to its weight. In this sense, it expresses the same kind of weight that a statue would have. In the ancient world, gods were not only depicted by statues, they were present in the statue. Because the deity of scripture does not have a statue, this glory is presented in aniconic ways, whether it be the cloud leading the Israelites in the wilderness of Sinai, or within the words of the scriptures themselves. It is also fascinating that coupled with this is the mention that he upholds Feron, all things with the power, dynamis, of his utterances, rimata. This essentially illustrates the point that was previously made. The glory of God is radiated by his Son, who carries all things by the power of his utterances, which contextually refers to God's instruction. In this sense, the use of hypostasis is potent here, especially in its most basic rendering as something standing underneath, as a sediment or support. In other words, it's presenting Christ in similar terms to that of a statue in which the deity dwells. This sense can be seen in other Pauline literature, namely Colossians 2.9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. This statuesque imagery employed by the author of Hebrews is solidified in his use of the Greek word charaktir to refer to the son being the imprint of his hypostasis. The verbal form of this root is charaso, meaning to engrave or to sharpen. Another noun that comes from the same root is charagma, which is used in the Bible to refer to graven images. There is an equivalent example of this usage from Paul's encounter with the Athenian philosophers in Acts 17.29. Then, being God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed, charagmati, by the art and imagination of man. This concept is central to the Pauline narrative, that being that the deity of scripture is not to be bound to temples or statues made by the hands of men. Such a rule is uttered by Paul himself in the same interaction with the Athenians. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all to mankind, life and breath and everything. This concept is also firmly based in the Old Testament scriptures. One famous example is Isaiah 66.1, which is quoted by Stephen in his famous monologue in Acts 7. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? And in Psalm 127, 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. This becomes critical to understand when dealing with the epistle to the Hebrews because the entire letter is essentially dismantling the temple and making all of its services, including its priesthood, void. It does this by establishing Jesus Christ as the new David discussed in the Psalms. One of the most powerful moments in the Psalms is its own dismantling of the temple and the Aaronic priesthood, 
with the establishment of the new David as the messianic king and priest in the order of Melchizedek. In Psalm 110, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In explaining the difference between Melchizedek and his priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood, the apostle writes, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is the first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise in, after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save the uttermost by those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the nations. He has no need like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. The importance of Christ's priesthood as a perpetuity cannot be overstated because it renders any temple service totally void. Christ, as high priest, does all of the work of the temple, including providing himself as the temple sacrifice once and for all. The only participation required is obedience to him. After dismantling the priesthood of the temple, the apostle proceeds to dismantle the temple itself by making it clear that this eschatological temple is heavenly and not built by human hands. Hebrews 9, 11-14 but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, and then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Having laid this out, the apostle then reinforces the importance of one's behavior, lest his audience should fail to do the work of the gospel. If the gospel is not heeded, the sacrifice initiated in the heavenly temple will be voided and the offenders will be condemned on the day of judgment. Hebrews 10, 26 through 27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Having gone through this context, it is clear that Christ is the graven image of God's hypostasis in the sense that he covers every activity of the heavenly temple. Compare this with the use of hypostasis in Ezekiel 43.11, where the totality of the eschatological temple is described in terms of hypostasis, which could be a key to understanding why the author used it in Hebrews. Given Jesus' role as high priest, and therefore the one mediator between God and man, he becomes the center of worship instead of the Herodian temple in Jerusalem. His role as the temple is also reminiscent of the language of John, which we'll get to later. But that being said, scripture balances this elevated image of Jesus with that of the lowly, needy neighbor, who is the image of Christ on earth. Of course, that can be seen in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Therefore, to participate in this temple service is precisely to do that work and not merely acknowledge Jesus' sacrifice or believe in him mentally. Hebrews 13, 8 through 16 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. The connection between fidelity, or pistis, to the gospel and this heavenly temple gives context to the other occurrences of hypostasis in Hebrews. In Hebrews 3, 1-6, and 12 through 14. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, 
and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence, parousia, and our boasting and our hope. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have all come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence, hypostasios, firm to the end. And then Hebrews 11.1, 1, Now faith is the assurance, hypostasis, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It is faith, or fidelity to the gospel teaching, that allows the faithful to participate in the sacrifice of Christ as the entirety of the temple service and receive the forgiveness thereof. Finally, this image of Christ as the image of God's invisible temple is solidified in the majestic words of John the Evangelist in Revelation 21, 22-27. Here, instead of being the charakter, he is similarly described as the lamp. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, but the glory of God gives it light, as its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The image of Christ as the lamp and as the temple is also featured in the prologue to the Gospel of John. The key to the prologue that is often missed in translation is the clever use of the word eskinosin to describe Christ dwelling among his people. This word literally means to pitch a tent and therefore to act as a tabernacle, which predated the temple but served a similar function. John 1, 9-14 The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh, and dwelt, eskinosin, among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of God, from the Father, full of grace and truth. It is important to note that the New Testament emphatically stops short of equating Christ with God the Father. He is the tent of meeting, not the presence itself. He is the engraving, not the hypostasis of the divine itself. He is the lamp which contains the light, not the light itself. He is the tabernacle that contains the word of God, not the word itself. There is no mention of divine usia uniting Jesus Christ with his Father. And the hypostasis, or the presence of the temple, spoken of is not his, but God's. Part 4, Final Words Christians today have the difficult task of shedding these theological developments that have shaped our thought for the past 1700 years. We are conditioned by our respective confessions to start with doctrine and then read scripture through that lens rather than the other way around. 
we rely on carefully contrived doctrine as our hypostasis, lest we be thrown before the unfiltered words of a God who does not speak English but biblical Hebrew, and who is not our pal but our judge. Human beings also have a distaste for the unknown, which is a problem for students of the Bible because the text deliberately blinds us. It takes away the icons and the idols that we see with our eyes, and it takes away the temple we experience. We can't see God depicted before our eyes, nor are we allowed to access him with our thoughts. The only sensory mechanism scripture permits us to use is our hearing. We are to be blind, not deaf. We have to hear the statutes of God through the examples of the various stories provided therein. There are no footnotes and no additions. No commentary is allowed. There is simply one God, one Hebrew language, one story, and one book. That must be our hypostasis. Let us learn from the endless and tiring debates of the past and cease debating altogether, especially cease debating based on the Greek, which in the Bible is merely the Trojan horse that the scriptural authors provided. And the Greeks that were stuck on these Greek words are just like the Trojans who fell for the Trojan horse. Instead of debating, let's simply hear scripture, not just by ourselves, but together with our opponents. I am reminded of the peculiar choice of the Orthodox Church to pair Titus 3.9 with the commemoration of the fathers of the Council of Chalcedon. Titus 3.9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Someone could say it's just a coincidence, but <laughs> I'd like to think it's intentional and incredibly clever at that. But regardless, it hardly matters. The sentiment is all the same. Let us continue to have open ears for Scripture's admonishment and correction and focus on our own behavior now for the sake of the next generation. Glory be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen.